Hello, and welcome to Around the Table, a podcast about food stories from science to everyday life. Lotta Hall, welcome to Bite Science Experts. Thank you. Uh, you're a sociologist of food. Um, what does that involve for you and the work that you do? Well, it means that I, I spent my time um, collecting data and analyzing data about uh, people's lives around food. That's sort of the sociological perspective. What do people do with food? What do they think about food? What are they concerned about? Uh, what are their dreams and worries? Uh, so a lot of what I do is doing empirical work on different population groups, different individuals, different people, and their relationship to food. But I also sometimes uh, have a more uh, a larger sort of like a macro perspective. So I also do surveys on whole populations. I've done some comparative research looking at variations between populations. And I also sometimes do research on, for instance, the the governance of food, the regulation of food. Uh, so actually, my field moves from the very intimate lives that we all live with the food uh, in our household, how we manage our bodies, what we, how we manage our meals, uh, and and the people we eat with. Uh, until uh, onto larger perspectives, such as what happened in the European Union after the BSE crisis, and how did the European Union restore consumer trust in food? Uh, so it's actually quite a varied field, but what sort of holds it together is the interest of relationships between people and food. Just to follow up briefly, you've mentioned populations. Uh, can I assume that these are mostly populations in Denmark, where you are? Yeah, mostly. Uh, but I've also I've also uh, done comparative research where we compare four Nordic countries: Denmark, Finland, Norway, and Sweden. We've done representative samples in each of these countries and compare eating patterns in these countries. Uh, and uh, we've compared also seven countries actually earlier in a study on trust in food where we included the UK and Germany and parts of Italy and uh, Norway and Denmark and I can't even remember the last country but uh, a number of European countries <laughs> but basically most of my research is 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 going on in Denmark. Now much of your research is focused on people's daily routines in relation to eating. Can you shed some light on why this is both interesting and important? Well, um, I mean, there's sort of two ways you can you can take an interest in this. One is looking at uh, how people eat, what people eat, why they eat the way they do, in order to learn more about uh, what guides and directs eating patterns in a population. And this is this is important for uh, people interested in uh, population health, in, in, uh, in public health. It's important for uh, issues of sustainability, looking at uh, to what degree people uh, shift their eating practices towards more sustainable practices. So in, in sort of a, a policy development um, perspective, looking at what people do is crucial because this is what 
actually guides whether or not people end up eating healthily or sustainably. So that's sort of one aspect of it. On the other hand, looking at what people do and think and, and care about with food is also uh, a lens that you can look through if you're interested in the lives of people, in what what is a family, what is a household, how do how do modern individuals handle their daily lives? What are their anxieties and concerns? Um, what are their social relations? You can learn a lot about that by studying food because food is involved in, in so many aspects of our daily lives. You've also focused on how people practice their daily routines and of uh, body care and management. How have you gone about that and, and what have you found? Well, we have we recruited for an interview study people that we from because of their participation in another survey we knew uh, that some of them were uh, what you would consider obese. They were were people with with uh, high BMIs, and some we also recruited people with uh, ordinary BMIs. So we interviewed people uh, that actually were not recruited on the basis that they were interested in losing weight or occupied with obesity. These were just people who we happened to know were obese. And some of them didn't really know it themselves. But So the idea here was to interview people with different body weights and different social classes to learn about uh, how body weight is managed in different social groups. Because as you probably know, there's a, a social gradient in obesity frequency, so uh, people with low educational status, low social economic status have higher higher uh, frequencies of, of being obese. Uh, and so we were interested in, you know, what, what does obesity look like from different class perspectives? And, and what we learned was that among, among people with low educational background or from working class background, there was a much more relaxed and generous attitude towards body weight. Uh, they were kind of um, sort of accepting their own uh, overweight or, or heavy weight, uh, uh, seeing it as not very important because as, as one informant would say, you know, they know who I am. They love me for who I am. They don't care what I look about, what I look like. So this this attitude also sort of transformed in a, in a more supportive uh, view on their children, sort of accepting that, that children might get a little, you know, uh, a little heavyweight, but not being too worried about it. Uh, and sort of encouraging that you, you should have a good time in your family. You should sort of enjoy spending time together. You should support your children. You should not harass them. So this whole... Um, way of living with with your bodies was was quite different from some of the uh, the middle class family that that we interviewed the the women or men from middle classes especially the women were very much stressed and anxious about body weight uh, and and those who who were or had been overweight were very concerned you know they had a lifelong struggle to try to get rid of this overweight and they'd spent fortunes and of different kinds of programs and products etc etc to lose weight and for these these women being overweight was a threat uh, both to their intimate lives as sexual partners with husbands 
They were worried that they were unattractive. It was very important in terms of uh, their role as mothers. Um, they were concerned that their children would be bullied and teased because they had an obese mother. It was shameful for the children to have obese mothers. And finally, uh, in terms of their careers, uh, they would sort of clearly think that uh, fulfilling middle-class positions was at odds with being overweight. You know, you cannot be a dentist who's overweight or uh, whatever you're doing. You need to be someone who can present yourself and, and present a, a, a nice and fit body. So we, we learned from this study that while overweight was something that you know, all groups were more or less aware of, the men much less than the women. But still, there's a, a, a very, very big difference in, in terms of how how horrible it is, how dangerous it is. And, and for middle-class women, being overweight is clearly a threat on all dimensions of their lives. So uh, uh, you would think that this must lead to Im immense mental health problems. If, if not also the, the physical problems of, of potentially there by being overweight, there's clearly going to be a lot of mental health problems associated with it, especially for this group. You mentioned earlier a project called Food in Turbulent Times, which you, you've headed. Are you happy to share something about this project? Yeah, this, this was uh, a project about what happens with food consumption in times of turbulence where you are fought to, you're, you're forced to uh, cut down on your food expenses. And the, the, the starting point was that uh, we know that in other countries, such as in UK, but especially in the US, there has been a, a very lengthy, uh, for years, uh, a monitoring of what is called food insecurity or food poverty. But this has not never happened in, in a country like Denmark. And I think also there is general consensus in, in this country that we don't we we would not have what you call food poverty or we wouldn't have people who can't find enough uh, food to eat. So our interest was to look at uh, people from different income classes. What do they do when they need to cut uh, food expenditure and and uh, in times like this, we all we know that all kinds of people need to cut down on their expenses on and off. <clears throat> and so we, we did some qualitative uh, lengthy interviews with people where we learned that there were sort of basically two ways of, of experiencing this uh, need to cut down on expenses. And we borrowed some concepts from, from the Polish sociologist uh, Zygmunt Bauman. He talks about vagabonds and tourists saying that in modernity, tourists are people who sort of travel from place to place and meet new pe people and enjoy uh, a lot of new and exciting experiences. And another kind of traveler is a vagabond who is who's forced to move on, who's always told you can't stay here, you need to move on. So these two kinds of experiences, we, we sort of thought these concepts nicely illustrated what we found, that namely that some of the people who who cut down their expenses, but who initially had sort of uh, generous income or okay incomes, they could experience this this uh, cutting down as as um, as a great experience, as something that developed their skills, something that forced them to become more creative and forced them to pick up habits from their parents or grandparents. So, in many ways, a very pleasurable experience. 
whereas people with lower income clearly uh, experience cutting down on food expenditure as a hassle and uh, a step backwards. So these were the qualitative uh, results. And then we did sur a survey in, in a representative sample in Denmark. And to our big surprise, we found uh, actually a level of food insecurity, genuine food insecurity around 8%, which uh, we didn't expect. So that was, I mean, that was sort of the first study in Denmark indicating that in a country which is a social democratic welfare society, and we claim that we have a, a generous welfare system, that even in our country, there's a, there are people who don't find enough food, who are not able to, to, to provision enough food to eat uh, as much as they want. And as in other countries, these are especially single parents. Okay, so we so we we uh, we learned uh, that this existed, and and then we have studied, you know, what people do in that situation from the survey, what kind of strategies they adopt, and how these strategies link to dietary healthiness, and uh, and we found that some ways of of coping with uh, with food budget budget restraint is okay from a health perspective, and others are not. Um, People who claim that they compromise with the quality of food, they they clearly have lower dietary health than people who who instead say, well, we stretch what we have and and sort of we use less leftovers and etc. This is these are strategies that are not, uh, according to our study, that are not compromising the the, the dietary health. So we, I think we learned we learned that there's more food poverty than we thought in Denmark, and uh, people act on this poverty in ways that are sometimes productive and sometimes counterproductive in terms of, of health. Can I ask you, uh, how does insecurity undermine uh, healthy eating patterns? That's generalized insecurity as well as food insecurity. Well, um, I mean, I mean, first of all, what, what we could see was that the more, the, the, the higher degree of insecurity you have, the more the more strategies do you adopt, the more uh, strong and, and vehement strategies do you adopt, ranging from, for instance, just switching shops to buy at, at cheaper places. That's what everybody would do as, as their first choice. But the more food, the more insecure you are, uh, the more would you tend to end up borrowing money or lend or, or, or depending on others to buy your foods because you simply can't afford it. And in, in between that, we found people who would, for instance, compromise on the qualities they had. Um, they would stop seeing people. They would stop socializing, et cetera, et cetera. So, so in terms of why does this end up in health? Uh, I think it's the, 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 we can't get it closer in these surveys than this is, these are people who've described that they are compromising the quality, the taste, the healthiness, the quality of the foods they buy. Um, so we, we are right now engaged in a qualitative study where we try to get much more in depth with how does food practices look in households facing this, uh, this need to cut down? What is it exactly they do? Uh, because you know that from a, from a sort of like a, a, a principle point of view, you could always, you could eat very, very cheaply and very, very healthily. Uh, so we need to learn more about what is it that makes that that sort of creates this link between 
having low food budgets and and unhealthy food. I, I don't think we have the full story there yet. No, and it's particularly important at the moment. Can you do you have views on its particular importance right now? Yeah, I think I think I mean right now we have we have this incredibly uh, unstable situation uh, in my country Denmark. We're probably better off than in many other countries. We've had uh, we're opening up after the COVID uh, uh, crisis. At least we have been until now, and. Uh, we were one of the first cut countries to shut down and we very fast, immediately actually, had uh, security nets uh, set up for people. So everybody got their income and, and wages were paid, etc. So there, there's been a long period where people have been fairly safe, but we don't know uh, in the next phase what will happen, how many people would actually get sacked and fired and how much the unemployment rates will go up. And uh, right now we are seeing uh, infection rates going up too here in Denmark. So I think uh, we are in, in sort of turbulent times still. And uh, with this disease on top of everything, I think uh, a lot of people will be very, uh, very insecure and uh, very hesitant and uh, maybe uh, try to save money. Uh, even though they're not poor, they might want to save money for, for, for tougher times ahead. Lord Holm, this is crucially important work. I want to thank you for uh, for your time and, and sharing your, your knowledge with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Around the Table is a personal production of Dr. Tesbird and Professor Stanley Uliajak, who are anthropologists of food and nutrition and of household uncertainty and insecurity. The opinions and ideas expressed are solely those of the contributors and podcasters and do not reflect the opinions of any university body. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you for tuning in.